Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and with me, Ben Valsler. As always, let's kick off with some science news. Dave, what do you have for us this week? Now, one of the most obvious things about the Moon, if you ever looked at it through a telescope or even just a pair of binoculars, is it's covered with craters. But these aren't uniform. Some older areas called the highlands of the Moon are very heavily cratered, whereas the mares, thought to be seas by early astronomers, have fewer craters. This is because the mares have been resurfaced with molten rock more recently, and this shows that the number of impacts has reduced over time. Now, one quite controversial theory about these craters says that there's an event called the Late Heavy Bombardment, about 3.8 billion years ago, which was both far more intense than the later bombardment, and it was qualitatively different. There were different rocks coming and hitting us. Now, going and dating each individual crater and, um, with an actual object or a rover is ridiculously expensive. However, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which was launched last year, includes a laser altimeter, which has built up a 3D map of the Moon. Now, James Head and colleagues have been studying craters over 20 kilometres using this map. One result was that in the lunar highlands, the craters cover 3 to 10% of the landscape, which is effectively the highest you can ever find, because as new things come down and create craters, they're erasing older ones. They've also been comparing different age services. The younger ones have a distribution of crater sizes you'd expect from the asteroids which are presently crossing the Earth's orbit. However, the older highlands, dating from before this late heavy bombardment, seem to include far more large craters than they should. This indicates the late heavy bombardment wasn't just a more intense version of the bombardment which has occurred ever since, but something actually different. One theory is that the orbits of Jupiter and Saturn have changed during the early years of the solar system and this set up a resonance um, in the main asteroid belt, disturbing it and hurling a random selection of its contents into the inner solar system. And this could have huge effects on developing life in the early Earth. So the evidence for this on Earth is likely to have been wiped out by the fact that Earth is very geologically active, it recycles the crust quite frequently. Do we see evidence on Mercury and Venus that this late heavy bombardment happened and was what we think it might be? There's definitely evidence for this very, very heavy um, bombardment on both Venus and Mercury, better on Mercury, of course, because Mercury doesn't have an atmosphere, whereas Venus has got a very, very thick atmosphere. But there is evidence for this late um, heavy bombardment everywhere, but no one's done quite this sort of study on them. And the bottom line then, Dave, is presumably that what we used to think was that a random selection of asteroids came out of the asteroid belt and smashed into us. Now we can actually say, well, at one time in history, they were one size, and then in a subsequent phase of history, they were a different size. So this is kind of rewriting our understanding of the formation of that asteroid belt and where the giant planets actually went during the history of the solar system as they took up their final positions and dislodged these objects. That's right. Um, they think that all of the more recent um, asteroids which have been dislodged from the main belt tend to be smaller because it's done by things like light pressure from the sun, which affects smaller asteroids more than bigger ones. So you get a different distribution of impacts. It's amazing to think that these footprints written into the moon's surface retrace the movements of the giant planets all those billions of years ago. Indeed. And we've discussed a lot more about the history and the migration of different planets throughout our solar system in the Naked Astronomy podcast. You can find that at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy. Ben, what have you got for us? 
Well, from shedding light on the history of the solar system to shedding light on birds at the wrong time, it looks like worsening light pollution is significantly affecting bird breeding habits, according to a new study published in Current Biology. Bart Campaneas and his colleagues at the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology in Seewiesen in Germany has carried out a seven-year study comparing the behaviours of five different songbird species, all ones that should be familiar, robins, blackbirds, great tits, blue tits and chaffinches. And they either lived in dark central woodland areas or in light-contaminated edge territories. This is still woodland, but where light falls on it from local human habitation. Male birds living in the light-polluted areas, they found, were starting to sing significantly sooner in the day, in some cases up to two hours earlier in the morning. Now, this is significant because the dawn chorus doesn't just consist of all the birds waking up at once and singing. It's a very finely layered, almost musical composition. Now, they were singing two hours earlier than their darker living counterparts, who still sung when the sun came out as normal. The effect was also more marked amongst the species that naturally tended to wake up earlier in the morning anyway, so the first ones in the dawn chorus, such as robins and blackbirds. Females exposed to light pollution were also laying eggs an average of 1.5 days earlier. The team also found that males living in the lighter edge territories were twice as likely to father extra pair offspring, and these are the avian equivalent of love children, probably because they won more female attention by starting to sing sooner than their darker living rivals. However, since females usually select as their extra pair mate choices males that they perceive to be highly reproductively fit, basing their selection on dawn song as a measure of virility, the early male risers may be thwarting the selection system and fooling females into breeding with the wrong guys, the less fit guys. And this can have obvious negative consequences for the species as a whole. Doesn't sound that serious, though. One and a half days of earlier egg-laying... Do we really think this is likely to have an impact on the birds, and why? Well, this sort of thing is really very hard to tell because ecosystems are usually very finely balanced and different food sources will be available at different times. So if we have a burst of bird birth a little bit earlier than normal, then there may not be the food there to feed them. Or there may be plenty of a different source of food that they don't normally eat. This can have knock-on effects on other species in the area. And all in all, the ecology is actually fairly finely balanced on these sorts of timings. So what do the researchers propose we do about this? Just turn the lights off? Well, humans are going to need lights, and we know that having road lights makes things a lot safer, so it's really not as simple a situation as just turn the lights off. But it's certainly worth keeping an eye on to see if this does have any ecological impact and to see if there is something we can do to try and supply darker areas and contiguous dark areas where the species can behave as they would do naturally. Let's hope so. Thanks, Ben. Um, Well, also this week, in a move which might hold the key to better drugs that can beat a range of mood disorders and perhaps do it with fewer side effects, and I'm thinking of diseases and disorders like depression, researchers in France have fathomed out how one of the most commonly used antidepressants and best tolerated, that being Prozac or fluoxetine, actually works. Now, going back about 50 years, we've known for that long that people who have problems with their mood and are depressed, if you study the brains of those people, you find very low levels of a chemical called serotonin, 5-hydroxytryptamine, which is one of the nerve transmitters that nerve cells use to talk to each other. In effect, it's the brain's feel-good chemical. So, most drugs now work by elevating the levels of serotonin, or so we thought, because there's the problem. When you give people antidepressant drugs, you can measure the effect on their serotonin in the brain 
almost immediately. The levels go up. But people say they don't feel better for maybe two or three weeks after starting the drug therapy. So the elevation of the levels of serotonin can't be the whole story. And that's where a group of researchers in France come in. It's Anne Baudry, who's at the University of Paris Descartes. And what she and her colleagues are publishing in the journal Science this week is a very interesting insight into actually how drugs like Prozac do what they do. They were using cultured cells in the dish and also they were using rodent brains. They were injecting and adding Prozac into the brains to see what would happen. And what they find is that when you expose nerve cells or nerve-like cells to fluoxetine, Prozac, they reduce their expression of a reuptake transporter. Now this is a special chemical which sits on the surface of the nerve cell and it acts like a vacuum cleaner for serotonin. It pulls serotonin back into the nerve cell, reducing or negating its action. Now, what they found was that when you take fluoxetine, you switch off the production of those particular transporters. And the way they found that this happens is that the Prozac turns on a small functional RNA molecule called a microRNA. In fact, it was called microRNA-16. And this gene is the genetic mirror image of the gene that makes the reuptake transporter. So one cancels the other out and you stop making these transporters and so the amount of serotonin that comes out of the cell goes up and it stays in the brain for longer and therefore it makes people feel a bit better. But there's an added twist. They also found that the drug makes this same population of nerve cells secrete another chemical signal called S100 beta and it goes on to a second population of nerve cells which use the nerve transmitter chemical noradrenaline. And when it goes into those nerve cells, it does the reverse. It turns off this microRNA-16, and that means that these noradrenaline-using nerve cells now start to express the uptake transporter for serotonin. And before long, these noradrenaline-producing nerve cells are also using serotonin. So they're secreting serotonin alongside their noradrenaline normal transmitter. So what's happening in the brain is two things. One, you're increasing the amount of serotonin signal in the brain, but the other is that you're turning another group of nerve cells that normally use one transmitter into a combined sort of dual-use nerve cell population that use two transmitters. And they think this probably underlies the therapeutic ability of Prozac to make people feel better. The important take-home message here is that it's a new insight into how these drugs work, and understanding that molecular clockwork may mean that we can design better drugs which are more highly focused, able to achieve their effect faster and with fewer side effects. Does this mean that we can find a way to stop the problem that people have when coming off antidepressants, which is that you need to reduce the dose very gradually over quite a long time? Otherwise, the side effects can be quite severe. Well, they may have a better withdrawal effect profile, but it may be that you don't actually get dependent on them in the first place. It may be possible to engineer more effective antidepressants, which will act more quickly, more discreetly, and without fewer dirty actions, which are peripheral to the actual beneficial therapeutic effect. That's the hope, although it's early days. Well, there's some other news about Prozac this week that's come out at the British Science Festival, where I have been all week. And now I'm just going to take you through a few of the headlines that we've had. Thelma Lovick, a researcher at the University of Birmingham, announced that very small doses of Prozac can stop the bodily changes that result in the symptoms of premenstrual stress. 
may sound like a fairly casual thing, but premenstrual stress affects up to 75% of women, and in 30 to 40% of those cases, it's a strong enough problem to impair daily activity. So that's some interesting research. There's been something else from King's College London. Richard Smith announced the development of a technique that extends the lifespan of a transplanted organ by combating the immune attack that donor organs receive immediately after transplantation. Now, their trick is to tether these immune system modulating chemicals onto the surfaces of the kidney and that stops this complement cascade, this immune attack in its tracks. They've done a pilot study to show that it was safe in 16 patients. Obviously, they're going to scale that up. King's College, again, this time Dr Manuel Mayer, has announced a cheap way to test people for diabetes risk. It's a £2 blood test that looks for microRNA markers in the blood. It was able to identify around half of the people with type 2 diabetes before symptoms develop, which widens the possible treatment window. Now, as diabetes accounts for around 15% of heart attacks in Western Europe, that's a very, very important discovery. Dr Mayer suggests that we use this not as an exclusive test on its own, but in concert with all the other methods we have. Just for headlines, we heard that gaining a lover will cost you two friends. The Pope's astronomer dropped by to let slip that he's a science fiction fan and that the Catholic Church would welcome aliens should they discover them. And there was also an announcement that might seem to come from the School of Common Sense, and that's that one in ten people are quite likely to be injured whilst walking and texting. Also during the British Science Festival, researchers from Bristol University reported on a development in quantum computing that could bring this revolutionary technology closer by up to 20 years. I met up with Jonathan Matthews to find out how their device works, but first Jeremy O'Brien, the director of the Centre for Quantum Photonics, explained why quantum computers are so appealing. People have been trying to develop a quantum computer for um, at least a decade in in a serious way and for a couple of decades people have known that such a device could be incredibly powerful for computation for particular tasks. And so there's been a big worldwide effort to realise a quantum computer. Even at this stage it's anticipated to be decades away and the reason for that is that you need to be able to control single quantum systems so that could mean single particles of light single photons or single electrons or single atoms. You need to be able to couple them together in complex ways to control them and manipulate them and read out the state that they're in. So it's an incredible quantum engineering challenge, if you like, to be able to make such a device. There's tasks that we know that we can do with a quantum computer exponentially faster than we can do with a conventional computer. So that means we can do problems that are intractable on a conventional computer, and they're ones whose time taken to do the computation grows exponentially with the problem size. For a quantum computer, we don't have that. They're they're linked in a sensible way with one another, the the size of the problem and the time taken. So rather than an evolution of the existing computer, we're looking at a revolution of the sorts of technology we use. That's exactly right. So it's a completely different way of doing computation. And the idea is to harness uniquely quantum mechanical effects So quantum mechanics is the theory that explains how the world works at its most fundamental level, how single photons, single atoms, single molecules and so on behave and interact with one another. And it's surprisingly different to the way the world works in in our everyday experience. For example, it tells us that an object can be in two places or more places indeed simultaneously, that two objects can be inextricably linked with one another no matter how far apart they are such that a uh, measurement on one will instantaneously affect 
the other one. And we call these effects superposition and entanglement, but that's essentially what they are. Jonathan, if I could bring you in here, what physically is this device that you've developed? This device is an integrated optical chip. It uses what we call waveguides to guide light through a monolithic structure, through a fixed structure. And these waveguides work very much like optical fibers, like pipes for light, if you will. And what we do is uh, we bring several of these, we pattern several of these waveguides close together so that the photons can actually tunnel directly between neighboring waveguides or neighboring pipes. And this allows us to see uh, these superposition patterns that we call quantum walks. What is a quantum walk and how would it differ from a classical walk? Perhaps I can start with, with a classical walk. A classical walk you can realize by dropping a marble and giving it a series of choices by going left or right as it hits a bunch of pins arranged in in a grid pattern. And this will give you a normal distribution at the bottom, a bell curve. So that's based on the marble being given a choice of going left or right based on probability. But if you give the marble the possibility of going left and right, it has the possibility of interfering with itself and you get at the end, a very different statistical outcome. These statistical outcomes include features such as propagating much faster. The the distribution propagates much quicker than in the classical case. And it's this kind of behavior that can be really harnessed in quantum technologies. So a quantum object will give you a very different likelihood of landing in any particular place from this walk. And that's when you put one photon through. Your work is working on putting more than one through to see how that works out. What's the advantage of doing that? A key thing is you need the two photons to be exactly the same in every single property, but they quantum interfere with each other, and the fact that there are two photons gives you a different statistical output that if you put in one photon and then put another photon in and compare the two results. So in terms of quantum computing, why is this an advantage? Well, this allows us to simulate more complicated structures. So quantum walks move around an environment that mathematicians call graphs. And these environments essentially become exponentially more complicated as you linearly increase the number of photons. So if I, if I have one photon, it's moving through a system of, let's say, 20 waveguides, then my system is of size 20. Whereas if I stick two photons into the device, then I'm simulating a structure that's of the order 20 squared. So, Jeremy, coming back to you, what do we hope to use these quantum computers for? So, these particular types of quantum computers based on quantum walks are, in principle, able to uh, realise a universal quantum computer. So, there's an, an exciting and important theoretical result to show that quantum walks are able to perform any sort of quantum computation. But in the nearer term, we expect to be able to simulate important quantum systems using these quantum walks in a sort of direct way. The types of things that we might be interested in simulating are complex molecules that might be relevant to uh, designing new pharmaceuticals or new materials. And it turns out that if we have a molecule with a order 30 atoms in it, that's the limit of what we can reliably calculate on a conventional computer, even using a supercomputer today. And the reason is that the description of that system, it grows exponentially in the same way that Jonathan described the exponential growth of the quantum walk as we add more particles to it. Other applications include understanding natural processes like photosynthesis, which rely on uh, quantum coherent effects for their operation. So by how much do you think your work has brought forward 
the reality of quantum computing? So I think it's fair to say that the majority of people working in the field of quantum information science and quantum computing specifically believe that a, that a universal quantum computer is decades away. But we're optimistic that using this quantum walk type technique, we'll be able to make a device that's able to do things that can't be done on a conventional computer within a five-year timescale. That was Jeremy O'Brien and before him Jonathan Matthew explaining how the phenomenon of quantum walk could help to lead to a revolution in computing. Their paper was published this week in the journal Science. As always, you can find more science news on our website at thenakedscientists.com slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.